We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. ICRT's weekly roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan over the past seven days. I'm Keith Menconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today is Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Good evening. And also, also in studio with us today is a frequent contributor, former foreign president of the Foreign Correspondents Club, Jane Ricards. Um, good evening, Keith. And all the way in Northern California, joining us by Skype today is Che Ting Ye of the U.S.-based Katagalan Media. Ting, thanks for being here. Good evening, everybody. This episode marks one year now that we've been doing this show. Hard to believe we've already uh, sat down for 50-odd episodes of this. Uh, but the news keeps on churning out, so uh, rather than dwelling on that, we're just going to get on with the show because we do have a lot to get to today. That being, uh, we've got trouble on the high seas for two of Taiwan's fishing vessels. We're going to cover that. The KMT is set to get a new chairman tomorrow with an internal election, pitting four heavyweights against one another. We'll discuss what's at stake for the party and for Taiwan. And we'll also take on a Forbes opinion piece, claiming that Taiwan living is just too cozy to foster a true startup environment. Lot to talk about there. But first... We've got some business to attend to, uh, business of the bleakest variety, that is. The central bank made moves just yesterday to reduce interest rates by 12.5 basis points, so uh, 0.12%, and also removed some restrictions to loosen up the housing market just a bit. Uh, Of course, lowering interest rates uh, is the central bank tool to shore up a bad economy. So, uh, Jane, uh, I guess that must mean Taiwan's got a bad economy. Uh, so the question is, is this uh, just a blip that we're seeing right here, or, or are we dealing with more of a structural issue in Taiwan's economy? Yeah, well, as we saw in reports, our GDP contracted for the past two quarters, and um, the papers are saying we're looking into negative territory and beyond. Um, I think this is a mixture of um, cyclical and structural factors. I think the structural factors are more worrying. Um, um, I recently did a story on Taiwan's um, electronics exports to China, and ta- most of something like forty percent of Taiwan's exports are electronics. Um, as China gets more self-sufficient in electronics, Taiwan will suffer the most. Um, Korea and Taiwan export the most to China as an overall proportion of their exports because they both export twenty-five percent or more of their exports to China. Hmm. But while Korea has a mixture of um, exports. Exports including cars and cosmetics. 71% of Taiwan's exports to China are electronics. So, as China gets more self sufficient, Taiwan's really going to be hurt. So, there are issues with the red supply, so called red supply chain. At the moment, it's more at the lower levels of tech, for example, flat panels. But um, as China gets more self sufficient, Taiwan will be hurt and it, it needs to sort of resolve these structural problems and sort of mm-hmm. go into industrial upgrading. Just very simply put. Yeah, but I mean, I guess uh, the big challenge there, as it always has been, is the size of the market. And as long as uh, Taiwan doesn't have access to these international trade deals, as long as it 
uh, has pretty high barriers between it and other markets other than China. Uh, that's going to be pretty difficult to do. Taiwan has very difficult challenges ahead. Um, I, I personally think that Taiwan's best hope is the TPP. Mm. Um, I just hope that the incoming government is sort of strong enough to implement all the stra- the changes that are required from the Americans and other countries to make Taiwan eligible. I mean, it's all very up in the air at the moment, including you know the second round membership of TPP itself outside Taiwan. But um, I think that Taiwan's two major options are the TPP and RCEP, and um, Reset will be almost contingent on China's approval, and that doesn't look very likely given that it, China recently established relations with Gambia, which is a really big warning sign to saying when. Yeah. But, so, yeah, in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, at least, at least it's uh, somewhat good news for uh, homeowners or people looking to buy homes, right, Gavin? Apparently so, because apparently they, they've lifted some regulations on mortgages. There you go. There you go. Little little silver lining. And for... if anyone's interested, the latest rate cuts see the discount rate fall to 1.5%, the rate of accommodations with collateral to 1.875%, and the rate of accommodations without collateral to 3.75%. Wait, wait, slow down. I'm writing this down. I'm writing, i I, I, I got to call my, uh, my broker. I can't repeat that. <laughs> Sorry, Keith. can't repeat that. All right. Fair enough. Okay, so there you have it. Uh, that is the state of the Taiwan economy. A little bit of bleak news from yesterday, but... Uh, might be sticking around with us for a while based on uh, what Jane's telling us right there. Up next, uh, we had a shootout on the high seas earlier this week. In the crosshairs, two Taiwanese fishing vessels, uh, the Lian Yixing, number 116, and the Shengde Cai. Uh, this all went down in the Straits of Malacca, and to hear descriptions of it, I mean, it almost sounds like an old-timey pirate battle, uh, except for the fact that the ships doing the firing uh, were official Indonesian patrol ships. Uh, So that makes things just a little bit more complicated. Uh, Gavin, tell us exactly what happened. Yeah, apparently this happened 100 kilometers from the northeastern coast of Sumatra in the northern part of the Strait of Malacca. And apparently a couple of Indonesian maritime patrol vessels sort of bumped into these or found these two Taiwan registered fishing boats entering the Strait of Malacca. And apparently, according to the Indonesian side, the two Taiwan fishing boats were illegally operating and they were fishing in this area, which, of course, is part of Indonesian territorial waters. And the Indonesians say they opened fire to move them on. And then one of the Taiwan fishing boats, according to the Indonesian side, tried to ram one of its patrol vessels. Now, that's according to the Indonesians. This is now, very much disputed. It's very mm. much disputed because the Taiwan, the Taiwan side says the boats weren't operating in Indonesian territorial waters. They were simply passing through the Strait of Malacca to get to Singapore. Mm. And they also deny ramming anybody. So, again, one of these things. Of course, it does happen. Of course, the Strait of Malacca is not one of the world's most peaceful waterways, one Mm. could say. It is well known for pirates and other nefarious things have long, long gone on in the Strait of Malacca, probably since man and woman got on a boat and sailed around the area. It's, uh, I mean, just hearing the name Strait of Malacca, (laughs) I mean, it brings... Uh, brings up some images, but uh, the Indonesian government has acknowledged that it was their boats, uh, and so really uh, the, 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 what's disputed is what actually went down there. But what's not disputed are the 12 bullet holes that the Shangde Tsai 
found in itself, or the, the people on the boat found the 12 bullet holes in it yeah. after they docked in Singapore on Thursday. And the, the captain of the boat says that it was a pretty harrowing ordeal. Well, being shot at by semi-automatic weapons would be on the high seas, I presume. Exactly, and that's kind of the key point that they were bringing up, is these bullet holes were not in the back of the boat where you might expect warning shots to be fired. They were right in the front of the boat where the crew is. And apparently one of the, one of the bullets apparently entered the cabin. Yeah. So, obviously, they were, the Indonesians obviously were going, one could say, for kill shots rather than warning shots. Yeah. That or the sights on their weaponry are off. <laughs> but we, you know, that's a disputable, Hard to tell. disputable issue, really. Hard to tell. So, uh, Jane, uh, of course, we've seen uh, issues and disagreements in terms of uh, fishing rights between Taiwan and the Philippines in the past. Uh, and so that's something that Taiwan needs to work out in its diplomatic ties with the Philippines. What kind of issues does this raise uh, diplomatically uh, between Taiwan and Indonesia? Right. Well, first of all, I'd make I'd stress the important point that no one got killed. So this makes yep. it a lot less nastier. Um, the second point I'd make is that it's going to be much harder, I think, for Taiwan to reach some sort of agreement with Indonesia. Um, if you look at the nominal GDP of Indonesia, it's eight nine five point six seven seven billion mm. to Taiwan's five point oh five point four five two billion, and the Philippines is three six nine point one one eight billion. In other words, um, Taiwan can afford to push the Philippines around and sort of conduct war games mm-hmm. and so on, and because um, Taiwan has the e- economic upper hand. Right, but In- Indonesia's huge. It's not only huge, but. We were talking about regional agreements earlier. Um, Taiwan really needs to join RESEP. It needs to join one of those international free trade networks. Yeah. And some economists at the Zhonghua Institute for Economic Research have told me that they're sort of hoping that if they're better relations with Indonesia, then perhaps the China factor won't matter. Because mm-hmm. ultimately, China will have the say in whether Taiwan can join RESEP or not. But there are some theories that making friendships with Indonesia because it's so big might help with RESEP. And then you've got Tsai Ing-wen has got this go south policy where mm-hmm. she's not a southward bound policy. I think go south was leading white southward bound policy. So in other words, um, Indonesia is more important to Taiwan. The Philippines is a very important friend of Taiwan's, but um, Taiwan can't push Indonesia around, and mm. it's going to be very it's going to be harder for Taiwan to. I don't think this fight can get nasty, and I think the government's going to discourage it from getting nasty, whereas with the Philippines, obviously someone was killed, but also they could afford to do all those war games and things like that because they had the economic upper hand. Mm. Of course, the, the, apparently this is the fishing boats were both based in Pingdong, Liocho, and apparently while the fishing boat owner has not been on record saying this, apparently the Liocho Fishermen's Association says that the owner of the fishing... Only one of the fishing boats actually got bullet holes in it. The other one actually got away without being hit. Huh. Uh, but apparently the owner of the fishing boat that was hit is demanding a compensation for damages incurred mm-hmm. to his vessel. B, he wants an apology from Jakarta over the shooting incident. And C, apparently there are calls for the people who opened fire on the fishing boats to be basically held legally responsible. Yeah. See, well, they might achieve all this, but it's going to be a lot harder than it would be with the Philippines. Mm. And another point I'd make about Taiwan the Philippines is the Philippines is a strong American ally. And what I heard was the US was concerned about Taiwan and Philippines fighting each other and China was kind of egging on the anti-Filipino sentiment in its mm-hmm. press. And so um, 
I don't know. I just think it's going to be. I think the fishermen might have certain expectations that the Indonesian thing's going to go the same way as it did with the Philippines. But you know, Indonesia is a completely different country, and I yeah. think that. It's got to be harder. Apparently it wasn't military vessels either, so they're not dealing with the Indonesian military. So the Indonesian military can't turn around and go, whoops, we thought you were pirates. Apparently the boats that were shot at, this is the boats that were doing the shooting, rather. This is according to an Indonesian official. They were part of the Marine Resources and Fishery Monitoring Office. Yeah. So So they weren't military vessels, they were actually looking for people fishing illegally. So, yeah, really the, the, the facts of the case are really important here. We don't even know if the Taiwan boat was in waters it shouldn't have been in, and we'll probably never know because, you know, everybody sailed away along with uh, any evidence to kind of establish what really happened. Uh, Definitely uh, perhaps a precedent-setting incident there. But we are going to move on and keep things on the international front. Uh, This next one, less swashbuckling adventure and more fancy dinner parties. Uh, with regional leaders, of course. Uh, we are talking here, of course, about the Boao Forum for Asia, everybody's favorite regional gathering of political and business leaders. Well, uh, speak for yourself. <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you have a, another regional gathering that you prefer of Asian uh, business and political leaders? Um, I can't think of one offhand, but the Boao <laughs> Forum wasn't the first one which came into my mind. All right. Well, uh, we'll let you think yeah. if you can recommend a better one for our listeners. But this is the one at hand. Uh, it's aimed at exchanging ideas and working out problems facing, you know, politics, business in Asia. Uh, representing Taiwan, we had former Vice President Vincent Xiao and a 33-member delegation. Uh, we have a note of incredulity on the uh, interest factor here over there from Jane. Gavin, sell us on this. What, what, what was going on there that we should know about? Well, Vincent Xiao just popped over to see his buddies, basically, in Hainan province in China. And what's interesting about this is the fact that the KMT are sending people over there still, and none of the delegation, I believe, was anything to do with the incoming government. So basically, Vincent Xiao, who's, of course, a former vice president, and, and of course, a losing attempted vice president in 2000, he, of course, went there and he had a great speech and he talked to a couple of people and apparently he came away going, he asked Beijing to deal with future challenges to the cross-strait tie situation with intelligence, patience and pragmatism. Now, he went on when he was talking to the head of China's Taiwan Affairs Office, Zhang Jun, to talk about the election, but he's... Apparently, according to the quotes that have appeared in the local press here in Taiwan, he talked about the election without actually talking about the election. So he mm. basically didn't say, well, look, baby, you know, we lost. You know, you've got to deal with someone else now. Deal with it. He simply said Beijing should face the reality referring to the decision made by the people of Taiwan. So, I mean, we could really see this as just another awkward moment in the whole transition process. A very awkward moment. Beijing were probably looking at him going, why the hell is he here again? What has he got to do with the future of Taiwan? Well, uh, He was, of course, looking going, oh, my friends are here. Hello. (laughs) What can I talk about? I can't really say very much because, of course, I'm not really anybody anymore. I'm getting the feeling that this is Gavin's favourite. Well, he's also interested, and of course... Great! It's like, a, it's like a rerun. It was a rerun. It was like a bad television rerun. Of well, course. but we're going to be having a lot of those because before China's Premier Li Keqiang once again called for Taiwan to adhere to the 1992 consensus, which was followed by a comment by the Mainland Affairs Council, which basically said that China should face the reality that both sides of the Taiwan Strait have been separate for over 67 years. 
It is it is a little bizarre getting this close to the inauguration, seeing the same exact political dramas we've been seeing for the past eight years. It's the same thing. I see what you're saying. And basically, the people that are there have no say in what happens in Taiwan (laughs) for the next four years. But I have an interesting anecdote about the Bought Our Forum for Asia. All right, later on. It's not just about politics and money. It's Mm. also they haven't bought our international music. Mm-hmm. event going on. A little bit of a cultural exchange. It's a cultural exchange, basically. Yeah. It's called the Boao Music Forum for Asia. It takes place in Hainan alongside the Boao Boring Economics one. And a friend of mine was invited this year to attend the musical event. Well, that now, sounds exciting. It does. It sounds very exciting. He sat there. He went to all the meetings. And apparently the the people, organisers of the political and economic section, decided that they wanted some musical respite for the bigwigs over mm. the event. So they talked to my friend and said, hey, look, do you want to do a gig for the bigwigs? To which he went, yeah, okay, you know, you've paid me to come here. You'll pay me more money to perform, I take it. Obviously, I'm going to perform to the bigwigs. What kind of music is it, Gavin? It's not the point in the story. (laughs) I'm just curious to know what sort of music the bigwigs like listening to. It doesn't matter. He can do anything. intensely boring music. He can do anything. (laughs) Sorry, I didn't mean to insult your friend. The guy can do anything. But the fact is, they refuse to pay him. The bigwigs refuse so to pay So basically, him. the bigwigs that are talking about money and business at the Boyau Forum refuse to pay for the musical act. They this is wanted, ridiculous. They want a free musical act. Can you imagine that? Gives us a sense of why Gavin is so irate about the Boyau Forum. I'm just curious to know whether all those Chinese officials want to listen to jazz or pop or <laughs> classical or... Hambone? Was this guy a Hambone player? I did, I, when he texted me this message, because I'm sure he was after a facetious remark, and in fact I know he was after a facetious remark, I told him simply to take to the stage if they refused to play him and play Kung Fu Fighting, <laughs> just to see what type of reaction he'd get for that one. All right, we usually reserve this kind of commentary for our, our last story in the day, but, you know, we're, we're, we're airing out everything early. But we're just going to leave it on that sad note for the first half. Uh, when we return, we're going to take a quick commercial break. And when we return, we'll be taking an in-depth look at the KMT chairmanship race with the election coming up tomorrow. And we'll be tackling the question, can Taiwan do startups? All that and more when we return after this. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week. ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Menconi, joined by Gavin Phipps, Jane Ricards, and Chai Ting Ye. Getting back into things, and election season is up and running once again. Feels like we just wrapped that up, but we're getting an aftershock of the January election tomorrow with the KMT chairmanship race. Of course, the KMT's overwhelming loss in January led to the resignation of Eric Ju as party chairman. They've been operating with an interim chairperson since then, that being Huang Minhui. Now, whoever is voted to the party's head tomorrow is only going to get to serve for uh, a sparse 18 months. Not a particularly long term, uh, but coming off that recent loss, I think just about all observers agree this is going to be a key time for the party uh, to see whether or not it can reform its way out of this very deep hole of unpopularity uh, they have found themselves in. So, uh, Gavin, we've got four candidates, uh, one of them being Huang Minhui. Uh, tell us a little bit about who they are. We've got Huang Minhui, of course. She's currently the acting KMT chairwoman, and she, of course, got the job after Eric Ju resigned following his general election defeat. 
Now, she, uh, she, I believe she was a, a Jai city or county magistrate, Jane. Yes, um, she was the former mayor of Jai. Right. And of course, having been an elected official in Jai, which is in the south... It's a, it's a plus for her, I think, there, obviously, because the KMT's support in the South has slumped. Yes, and also it wants to Taiwanize. Well, many experts think it needs to Taiwanize more to be popular. And, um, and she's, of course, considered yes. to be a more Taiwan person yes, rather yes. than a Waishung exactly. person. Right, we've also got, of course, Hong Shouju running, and, of course, she's famous or infamous, depending which side of the political fence you sit on, as being the sort of very temporary KMT's presidential candidate. Mm. And she's running, and apparently she's boasting about having a hell of a lot of support. Mm. Um, Of course, the demographics of her support are questionable because we don't quite know whether it's sort of the elderly KMT people supporting her or the younger ones, although I could take a guess and say it's probably the elderly ones because of Kong's Hong is known for her more sort of pro-China take on this. But, of course, she did she did actually get the most signatures of support for the support, the, the signature drive to run as KMT chairwoman. And then, of course, there's uh, Li Xin. Now, he's a Taipei city councillor. Uh, I don't know much about him, but he's, he's, he's come out with some, well, one rather odd policy. One of his things was... If you vote for him to become the KMT chairman, he plans to divvy up all the KMT's assets and give them out to the KMT members. A little so, bit of a uh, little bit of presence, just for you know investing in the party. I wasn't going to call it vote buying, Keith, but I think <clears throat> possibly you've hinted at that. But let's not say that. And, of course, the fourth candidate is Apollo Chen. He's a former lawmaker. He's a younger member of the KMT and considered to be more solid and more, more, you know, a more solid guy who's more Taiwan-centric. And he's, of course, the former cultural head of the Taoyuan city government. Yeah. Uh, Mm. uh, Interesting comments from him earlier this week. He was saying that the KMT needs to do more to make its differences with China clearer to uh, the electorate. Uh, Lee, meanwhile, uh, he's been talking a lot about uh, more youth involvement in the party. He actually called on the youth to kind of uh, almost make a make a, a revolution within the party to force party leadership to uh, reform and change. So that's what kind of all these guys represent, uh, the four of them, just to give our listeners a sense of that. But just based uh, on what I'm hearing, it, it sounds like this race is really between uh, Huang Minhui and Hong Shouju. Uh, those are the two front runners. Uh, and as Gavin was saying a second ago, Hong Shouju has been doing shockingly well, uh, especially given the fact that uh, she was kicked out of the you know the presidential bid for the KMT earlier this year because she was so unpopular. Uh, and this is uh, especially surprising to me because I think another thing that a lot of observers agree upon is that uh, now is really a time for the KMT to uh, take a moment, uh, assess why they are so unpopular, and, and make moves to address that. Basically, reform uh, is what that would look like. And Hong Shouju is not a reform candidate. Uh, by any means. So uh, I'm very curious, Ting, what do you see behind uh, her relative popularity in this race? Basically, I think she represents sort of where if you take all of um, President Ma or if you take sort of, you know, very conservative, old, you know, old hardliner positions of the KMT to its extreme, that's, you know, you get Hong Shou right? And I feel like anybody who would think, you know, it's possible to turn the party around in a totally different direction. Um, I would guess a lot of the a lot of those people probably deserted the party or 
um, found it pretty hopeless to you know be able to do that. Hmm. So uh, she's she's the candidate by default because the reform voters have just given up. That's kind of what I think. I'm curious to see what uh, Gavin and Jane thinks about that. Actually, um, my interpretation is. Um I think there are many different reasons, but what I noticed during the presidential election was Hung was able to expand her power base. And when Eric Jew um, dumped Hung and ran himself, um, someone within the party told me that Eric Jew actually had quite sort of more organisational or personal reasons, and he was actually afraid that they... He said that they all knew that the KMT was going to lose the presidential election and possibly do bad in the le- badly in the legislature too, and they, that Eric Jew was actually worried that Hung Shouju was going to run for chairman and that was going to create problems for the KMT. So Hung has been angling to be chairwoman since, I'd say, about October or September last year. So I think she's built up her power base. And secondly, I think there's sort of a cultural thing going on here that... Um, I think um, people think that she was really mucked around and embarrassed when um, she was dumped as the presidential candidate, so they sort of owe it to her. I think that there's this, there might be sort of sense that uh, among some people that um, we owe it to her because we horribly humiliated her um, earlier on before, you know, when she was dumped as a presidential candidate. And also I'm wondering what, what all of you think about the possibility of a split vote because from what it looks like... Um, Everyone else is more sort of um, nativist than Hong, obviously. And I'm wondering whether it's possible that all the Taiwanized votes could be split among Li Xin, Apollo Chen, and um, Huang Mi Hui. The way the elections work, as I understand it, is there's a runoff, right? So basically, the top, if there's no clear majority, then the top two, um, the candidates with the top two um, you know, number of votes then get to face off directly right. and... In that case, if uh, you know if Huang supposedly has, you know, if, if the nativist faction has uh, you know, more votes, you know, apparently the assumption is that they would all go to one of the candidates. It's not Huang, you know, whoever can, comes in second or first mm. or whichever. So. so the split ticket vote is not a scenario they necessarily need to worry about. Uh, yeah, but I, I think I've seen Hong basically going around telling people, you know, let's get this done in one shot, let's not have a runoff. You know, obviously she's worried about that possibility. Hmm. Yeah, I don't think she'd win a runoff. Yeah. I think people... Of course, this whole election has been rather subdued. Yeah, yeah, we, haven't, mean, we, we haven't didn't hear about it too much this there's, week. There's been hardly any news about it in the local newspapers, even on the television. They've had a few meetings, they've had a few round tables and forums, they've been covered slightly but there's been no blanket coverage of it and what's another interesting thing is none of the kmt heavyweights like the jason who's and some other people have actually been asked who they're going to vote for mm. none of them have come out with like stumping for any of these candidates which has been quite interesting so yeah uh well i i guess i kind of want to end things out uh with you ting uh and as as we've kind of uh been hinting at this whole time this does seem to be a chairmanship election that has pretty big implications for the direction of the KMT uh, going forward. Uh, what do you see as being at stake here? You know, so I think the the most important thing to remember about the KMT is that they, you know, for better or for worse, they are they are still the opposition party in Taiwan, right? They're, um, you know, and I think uh, a lot of commentators, especially um, abroad here in the United States, you know, kind of see well, it's. Taiwan's democracy will not benefit from having the DPP being, you know, the only party on the scene, 
right? So then the question is, well, do we have the opposition party that's something like the KMT or um, a totally different party, you know, coming from somewhere else altogether, right? And I think, you know, as we've sort of discussed before, the chairmanship election tomorrow, you know, decides uh, which way the KMT is going to go. Are they going to go become a, uh, a party that represents these, um, you know, very sort of, uh, nostalgic about China, these, you know, greater China, these, you know, very, you know, going back to, you know, KMT's roots as a, you know, party from China. Um, are they going to be the party that represents these people's interests, or are they going to be the party that represents, you know, sort of a broader, you know, coalition or a broader uh, interest that's unhappy with the, the, the DPP, either from the right or from the left, right? So mm-hmm. I think those are the choices that the KMT has to make. And unfortunately, it cannot be... It has to pick one, right? It cannot be all of those things. You know, I think that's, uh, you know, if it goes the route of Hong Shouzhou and becomes a party that represents, you know, okay, we're, we, know, we know who our core you know, supporters are, we know what they want, we, know, we just want to represent them, then they become a small fringe, you know, party within the, you know, the, the spectrum of Taiwan politics and leaves a room for, you know, a more broad-based opposition group to come up at some later time, right? So, you know, it's kind of up to... You know, this election really to decide the fate of the KMT. Well, I don't know. You could argue it's not that because, of course, they're only going to be in office for eighteen months. So, I, well, you could argue that it's simply a litmus test for the direction the KMT could go under a certain leader. Which means that in eighteen months, if the leader comes in, makes a pig's ear of it, they're going to be voted out anyway. But how many how many pig's ears of it can they take in a row? I mean, they've already taken two bad elections. How many more can they take before yeah, the party falls apart let completely? Me finish. Because if it's only 18 months and they do make a pig's ear of it, then the KMT doesn't have to go into open revolt and remove them. Mm. They're simply going to be voted out of office in 18 months. Mm-hmm. All right. I would, I would tend to agree with actually with what Gavin said. I, I would predict, um, cautiously predict, that if Hung Shouju wins... Um, the party is just going to get even more disastrous and um, she'll be weeded out naturally that there'll be another election in 18 months and I think that she'll be weeded out because what she thinks is too distant from what the Taiwanese people want in terms of China. So it might, it might just if we look back on it in 20 years' time, it might if Hung Shouju wins, it might be just people are going to say, wow, that was a fluke. You know, that didn't represent the general trend of the KMT or society. But it could still be a very damaging, a further damaging 18 months. Um, Yeah, but it's still early days. Like the next election's in 2020. Mm. So the KMT's still got time to get its act together, I think. Even they can, I guess they can, they shouldn't waste 18 months, but it's not. It's still, mm. There's still time. There's still sort of another two and a half, three years. All right. Still has time to get its act together. The most bullish thing we've said so far about the KMT. <laughs> uh, but we're going to get away from politics now. Last up for today, we are back to business and we'll be taking on the claims of a recent Forbes opinion piece on Taiwan's startup scene. Uh, this is a piece out from one Rebecca Fannin, who covers venture trends around the world uh, for the magazine. Uh, And to get a feel for what's happening in Taiwan, what she did is she brought together local venture capitalists and angel investors uh, just to kind of hear from them uh, what are the challenges that they're facing, uh, they and other entrepreneurs are facing here in Taiwan. Uh, And uh, is there anything standing in the way from this startup scene to really take off? Uh, As I think a lot of observers uh, note, you know, the tech scene is not quite as vital as it uh, was perhaps 10, 15 years ago. Uh, Based on 
those conversations. Her conclusion is that Taiwan's startup scene's main challenge is not a lack of talent, uh, but rather a lack of drive. She says, uh, and I quote, uh, Taiwan life is simply too relaxed and enjoyable to stimulate that hunger needed to break out of the mold and venture out of corporate life to do a startup. She later goes on to say that uh, for many in Taiwan, uh, the fear of failure uh, is very strong and uh, often is, uh, you know, inhibits the, the, the drive to kind of break out, try something really risky, which is, of course, uh, very important for any entrepreneur. Uh, now, Ting uh, has some connections to uh, the startup scene in Taiwan. Jane covers business. Uh, so let's uh, start with you, Jane. Uh, what was your uh, reaction to this uh, argument? Um, look, first of all, I found it a little bit offensive that she said it's simply too re relaxed and enjoyable to stimulate that hunger needed to break out of the mould and, um, you know, get out of corporate life to do a start-up. I don't know who she was talking about, but you've got to remember that they're NTU students, that, you know, students from the most prestigious institutions, you know, are starting out at 22K. If you look at the student sunflower protesters, a lot of them are from prestigious institutions, and a lot of this discontent which generated the sunflower movement was that education is no longer a ticket upwards, that they didn't really see many prospects. So theoretically, people like that should be hungry to break out of the mould. Mm. Um, I, so I would disagree with her comment that... Um, Taiwan's simply too relaxed and enjoyable. I think there are other factors involved. Mm. Now, the second point is she talks about a fear of failure. Um, I agree with that to some extent, and I think you can see that when Taiwanese try and speak English, that they can many Taiwanese can read it fluently and even write it, but they're too embarrassed to speak in case they make a mistake. I think that is in the culture to some extent. But I think there are all kinds of other things at work here. First of all, I, I feel it's kind of dangerous to blame people's culture for their lack of success. I think that's almost verging on ethnic discrimination. Secondly, um, I would say that um, what she, she mentioned that um, several decades ago, it was Taiwan where Asia venture capital really took off. Um, you've got to, I'm connecting this to the sort of political transitions in Taiwan, that when Taiwan was a tech powerhouse, it was in the day, like Zhang Jingguo got the, I think it was, I think it was in the days of Zhang Jingguo, the Xinjiu Science Park got started, but it was a very, very top-down society. And now Taiwan's a democratic society and startups are a very individualistic, um, you know, very atomized sort of capitalistic sort of, you know, thing to do. But so I'm, I'm, I'm sort of connecting this more to the transitions in Taiwan society that, and I think it's connected to the education system. Mm. That in the old days, people were told what to do and there were sort of plans to develop Taiwan's tech scene and very top, top down. But um, now it's sort of bottom up. And the problem is, I wonder whether Taiwan's education system has really come to sort of terms with this and is teaching people to think individually, more individually and more for themselves. Mm. And then my final point, too, is I think this is connected to Taiwan's diplomatic isolation. And I was recently talking to an economist, and he was saying, well, if you want to develop a good app, you know, it has to be used in China. It's not just for Taiwan. And so, but people don't want to engage with China, especially young people. So um, I think to just sort of lump it on Taiwan's culture and just say they're afraid of failure, I just feel that's fairly demeaning to Taiwan and it doesn't really capture the complexities of the situation. Bit of a cop-out, really, anyway. What's your yeah. final line? Oh, it's because they're afraid of failure. <laughs>
Well, uh, Ting, you can hear there, uh, it sounds like neither Jane nor Gavin uh, holds much stock in that culture argument right there. Uh, you grew up in Taiwan uh, in your younger years. Uh, what, what do you see in that argument? Well, I think it's, um, I mean, as, uh, you know, with all things, it's not very, it's very difficult to capture, you know, everything that's going on with a society, right, with, you know, a sort of 500-word you know, observation from, you know, somebody who doesn't, who hasn't grown up there or doesn't, you know, is, is not there all the time. But I, I think, I think what's interesting is, you know, when you think of Taiwan, right, like all the, you know, big conglomerates, right, like people in Taiwan, they love these kind of stories, right? Perry Guo started from nothing. He built his empire. Um, you know, Wang Yongxing built Formosa Plastics out of nothing. Um, and if you even go back further, right, you have these merchant, you know, families that basically started from nothing and kind of, you know, entrepreneurially, you know, move their way up, right? So, you know, I, I don't think there's ever a lack of entrepreneurial spirit in Taiwan. Um, the problem is that all of these people were, you know, dropouts, right? They didn't finish formal education. And then you have the people, you know, and then parents are saying, well, yes, these people did great, but then, you know, that's sort of the exception to the case. You know, I think people are much more encouraged to, you know, get good grades, you know, get a stable job, you know, that sort of thing. And so, you know, I, I think, uh, I don't want to attribute that to culture per se, but I do think the, um, the the education system has a little bit to do with that. And, you know, and sort of going back to this whole um, life is too comfortable thing, I, I I don't think that's, you know, accurately, that accurately describes the situation uh, enough, right? So, uh, you know, I, I don't think people are finding life in Taiwan to be too comfortable, yet I think there is this sort of sense of, you know, well, I don't know what to do about it, right? And so, you know, the within within the younger generation of entrepreneurs, I don't think there's enough of um, you know people who have uh, been successful and people who have failed, and then you know people who sort of come back and mentor the younger people, right? So, you know, you don't have. It, I I do think it's a little scary right now for people to venture out on their own to say, hey, I'm going to build you know a company. Um, but you know, they, I don't think they see people. I don't think I don't think they see role models. You know, sort of uh, a step or two ahead of them, right? So you, the the people that they you know they look to they they look to are these you know microchip companies, these silicon you know companies, or these you know like manufacturing you know OEM manufacturers, and it just doesn't apply to today's you know business anymore. So I you know I I think uh, people talk in Taiwan talk a lot about. Startups, um, and there is definitely interest. I just, um, and, I, and I agree with Jane. I don't think we should attribute culture to um, you know this this lag. I think it's just, you know, simply put, it's just the beginning in Taiwan, and you know we just haven't seen enough of people you know, giving it a go to be able to say you know whether or not it's uh, actually growing or not. Yeah, so I, maybe uh, the most interesting thing I'm taking away from this conversation is perhaps what it's going to take uh, for. Taiwan's uh, startup community to uh, really get going is for the island to become more comfortable so, uh, you know, people feel more economically secure and uh, therefore more willing to take risks, perhaps. But if uh, folks want to read this article for themselves instead of getting our take on it, uh, it is called How Long Will Fear of Failure Outweigh Urge to Start Up? And it was written once again by Rebecca Fannin. So you can find it on the Forbes website. That rounds out uh, our proper stories for the day, the stories that are going to make it into uh, the broadcast section. 
Now we're going to move into the part of the show that is reserved specifically for our podcast listeners, uh, and we try to keep it somewhat silly over here. Today we are really following through with that. Uh, Gavin, what did you get for us? Hey, we got the ISU One Grand Prix, which translated into English means the Chair One Grand Prix. Yes, I said chair. I mean office chair. An office chair Grand Prix around the streets of Tainan. You forget your Formula One Singapore. You forget your Formula One Bahrain. This is your office chair one, Tainan, April the 24th of this year. You got all your snark out of the way for that story earlier. Now this I is something... Know. This is it. This, this is, is it. it. This, this is, is it. a good this one. Is, this is the office chair Grand Prix. Now, it's an event that's been taking place in Japan since 2010. Mm. It became such a huge hit in Japan that this year, for the first time, a team of people, and from Tainan, in fact, they went over to Japan to take part in the Japan Chair One Grand Prix. I don't know how they did, because it's this weekend. Mm. So that's this weekend in Japan. And Something the, yeah, to look forward to. If you're in Japan, uh, Kyotonabe. Mm-hmm. There you go. You that's where to be. Kyotonabe, you can see the Kyotonabe Chair One Grand Prix. Listen for some anyway, squeaking of chairs. For the Taiwan version of this, it's on April the 24th in Tainan. And the organizers say basically its teams are made up of three riders and they compete. On their own office chairs. Office chairs aren't given out at the event. You have to turn up with your own office chairs. Well, just like a normal race. Yeah, yeah, basically. And it's an endurance race in which teams compete as many laps of a 180-meter course as they can within a two-hour time limit. Wow. Now, organizers of the Tainan race say that it will take place through some streets and areas that are like tourist spots and shopping places. Mm-hmm. And if you've seen... I saw footage of this this week week yeah and it's pretty neat i'll tell you this is <laughs> not getting a, that sense this is a sport that you cannot do in a pair of flip-flops and a t-shirt and a pair of shorts because if you come off an office chair at a great rate of knots you're going to do yourself some damage i don't exactly know how this works Gavin. i'm really confused you sit on your office chair like you yes. would in your office and you propel yourself along the streets using your legs Right. And if Are you, most people going backwards? Well, obviously backwards is a bit dangerous because if you go over backwards, arse over tip, you mm-hmm. can do yourself some damage. This is why you see people competing in office chair racing sports in sort of motorcycle racing gear. It's, it's not for the faint of heart, it's apparently. It's not for the faint of heart. Also, you're allowed your own pit crew. Uh-huh. Because, of course, if you're pedaling along the street, it's hard on the chair. It's hard on the chair, and you might lose a wheel. Mm. So you can pull into your pit stop, you get a new wheel on a chair, and you pull out again, and you carry on. What do you think we? Uh, what do you think are the chances that we could get sponsored by IKEA? Hey, that's a good idea. If IKEA's listening, we have three people, <laughs> and we'll do it, and we want your chairs. Sponsor <laughs> us for the Taiwan Ever First Chair One Grand Prix. I have experience. I have experience you have experienced making IKEA things. Not making IKEA. Ah. Well, I do. I do that. I do that. But I actually have experience in chair racing. Uh, the the office furniture store in the U.S. is known as Staples. I got kicked out of Staples for racing on their chairs. How old were ah. you? 11, I think. Hey, you're so qualified. I go back a long ways. This goes yeah. back a long ways for me. You're, you're, te- you're team captain. <laughs> there we go. Jane, are you on our team? Are you ready to join? Um. Ooh. I don't, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, out of everything I've heard of, which is a complete waste of time. Could you be the pit I crew? I put this right at the bottom. Are you, are, are, okay, so that also sounds like a no for the pit crew. Uh, Ting, Ting, can we get you on board with this? 
Actually, I have a quick question. Is there uh, stand, you know, is, is there standard specifications for these chairs? I mean, I can imagine that. Right? I mean, you could unbolt the wheels, right? You know, put Spoken covers, like a true right? lawyer. No, you can use <laughs> yeah. any chair. You could even, you know, those super skateboard wheels. If you could come up with a way, you could even fit them on your chair. You could do anything. There we go. My chair just happens to have a V8 engine in it. That's uh... that's called cheating, though. <laughs> that V8 engine is definitely cheating. No, no, no. It's a, it's for the back massager. That's how the back massager is powered. That would be pretty neat if you got one of those dirty, great big massage chairs and did it in one of them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that would be good. Do it in style. All right. Well, that's something to look forward uh, to in Tainan in April. So coming up real soon, folks in Tainan, look out for that. Uh, we are going to end the show there for today. Uh, please do join us again next time. Taiwan This Week is, of course, broadcast every Friday evening at 8.30 p.m. right here on ICRT FM 100. You can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website on iTunes. Quick question for our listeners. We are now back at our 8.30 p.m. time slot. Uh, but at 8.30, we have to edit the show just a little bit shorter than we would like to, not as much time as we would like here. Uh, we uh, could go to 10 p.m., do a longer show, uh, but of course that would be later at night. Don't know how convenient that would be for everybody out there. Uh, if you have an opinion on this, whether you would prefer 8.30 with a shorter show, 10 p.m. with a longer show, uh, you can email me directly. Uh, get to me at keith at icrt.com.tw or send us a message on the Facebook page. Uh, we'll get it there as well. Uh, let us know how you feel about that. Anyway, we're going to wrap up the show there. Uh, signing off from the ICRT studio, I'm Keith Menconi, joined by Gavin Phipps. Yeah, good night. Uh, and Jane Ricards. Good night. And by phone, we've got Chating Ye. Thank you. It's uh, been a pleasure to be here. And thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.